Hello and welcome to HipCast, the podcast here to improve hip fracture care. From the Australian and New Zealand Hip Fracture Registry, I am Research Assistant Neve Ramsey and to begin this episode I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live and work at the ANZHFR. I share this acknowledgement to traditional custodians past, present and emerging across Australia, New Zealand and wherever you may be tuning in from. Today on the episode we have Associate Professor Mark Newman, anaesthetist and clinical researcher of the REGAIN trial from the University of Pennsylvania. We will be discussing his publication Spinal Anesthesia or General Anesthesia for Hip Surgery in Older Adults, recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Geriatrician Dr. Hannah Seymour from Fiona Stanley Hospital in Western Australia will also be joining to facilitate a clinician-to-clinician discussion with Professor Newman. Without further ado, let's begin. Thank you, Professor Newman, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be able to speak to this podcast and this community. Could you please share with us your professional role and background? Yeah, as, as you mentioned, uh, I'm, an, I'm an anesthetist or an anesthesiologist, uh, as we like to say in the United States. I work at the University of Pennsylvania. I've been a member of the faculty here since 2010. Um, And I've been studying uh, hip fracture care and ways to improve outcomes for hip fracture patients uh, for just about as long. Um, After I did my training in anesthesiology, I did some additional research training here at Penn, and and I've been doing outcomes research using observational data, so so retrospective studies and randomized trials like REGAIN um, since about 2010. Thank you. And what was the motivation behind the study? And can you briefly briefly outline the study design for our listeners? Well, you know, there there really are two main approaches to delivering anesthesia for hip fracture surgery. As the listeners likely know, uh, most hip fracture patients do receive some type of surgery uh, to treat their injury. Um, For a long time, uh, people have been doing both spinal anesthesia, which is an injection in the back that numbs the legs, uh, and general anesthesia, which is medically induced unconsciousness, where you support the lungs typically with a breathing tube. Those are the two main options used around the world uh, for patients who are having surgery after hip fracture. Uh, People have compared these in different research studies over time. But many of these studies are very old, many were very small, and a number of the more recent studies used retrospective techniques, looking backwards in data to compare patients. All these past studies had really serious limitations, which meant that they they really weren't sufficient for helping patients, families, and clinicians make decisions about their care. So what we decided to do was a very large randomized trial using the most rigorous kind of design available, which is that we'd randomly assign people to get spinal or general anesthesia to compare these two common options to give people better information to make decisions about their care. Fantastic, thank you. And so which patients did you recruit for this study and who was excluded and how many facilities did this all include? We had 46 hospitals participate in our network in the United States and in Canada. It was all over those two countries on the East Coast and the West Coast and in the middle. We enrolled patients who were age 50 and older, who had a hip fracture and who were planning to get surgery. We excluded patients and we, who had 
inability to walk without human assistance before fracture. The reason we did that was because that was our main outcome. And those patients, because they'd already met the outcome, could not be in the study because we would be unable to evaluate whether or not they'd reached the endpoint. We had a few other exclusions. We tried to keep our inclusion and exclusion criteria very broad so that we'd be able to represent a broad group of hip fracture patients. Probably the main exclusion criteria that affected our enrollment was exclusion based on use of medications uh, that thin the blood, anticoagulant medications. Um, In the United States, uh, there are guidelines published by our professional societies that outline acceptable time windows to do spinal anesthesia after being on an anticoagulant drug. And for the purposes of patient safety, uh, we adhered to those guidelines as major exclusions. Um, uh, we, we had a few other exclusions, but those were the ones that really uh, counted for the most uh, exclusions uh, in, in, in enrollment. Wow, yeah, and 46 sites is it's no small undertaking. Um, so with that, uh, what were the major findings of the study? And in particular, what did this show for the hip fracture group? Yeah, well, again, all of our patients had hip fractures. We, we focused on a main outcome of being able to walk independently without human assistance at 60 days and that they were alive at 60 days. So if you had died before day 60 or if we called you up on the phone uh, and you said you weren't able to walk without human assistance, then we would have counted you as having met the primary outcome. Uh, We also looked at delirium for the first three days after surgery using a standardized tool that's called 3D CAM. We looked at hospital length of stay. um, And then we also looked at mortality uh, and ability to walk among survivors. For all of our outcomes, uh, for all of those primary and secondary outcomes, we found very similar rates across both groups. So just to give you the numbers, for our primary outcome, death or inability to walk at 60 days, um, we found that for patients who'd been assigned to get general anesthesia, the rate of that outcome uh, was 18% versus 18.5% in the spinal anesthesia group. For delirium, for example, it was 19.7% in general anesthesia and 20.5% in spinal. Again, very similar. The median length of stay in the U.S. was three days in each group. The median length of stay was six days in each group in Canada. We looked at some exploratory outcomes like medical complications after surgery. Many of these were very uncommon events. Most were pretty low rates. There were a few numerical differences we saw with some patients who'd gotten general anesthesia having a higher rate of in-hospital death, a higher rate of acute kidney injury, higher rate of post-operative pneumonia, and a higher rate of critical care admission. But interestingly, when we compared the patients at 60 days, the results were similar in both groups. Okay, thank you. And how do you feel the results of the study can impact care of patients we see in the hospital with hip fractures? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Our real goal in doing this study was to give clinicians, patients, family members better information to help them make their decisions about the kind of care they'd want. I think what our study does is it provides some data that can inform discussions about these choices. There's always room for more studies, and there were 
limitations in regain that we acknowledge in our paper and that we're very aware of. But even with those limitations, it provides a wealth of data that can help people understand what they're choosing when they choose spinal or general. Uh, to that end, you know, when we talk to patients about spinal or general now, and we talk about delirium, we can say that in a large sample of patients, it's largely representative of the types of patients that we see with hip fracture cases, we didn't see big differences in delirium with spinal versus general. This doesn't rule out that there might not be some patients who might benefit or some ways of delivering spinal or general anesthesia that might have certain advantages. But on average, given the way care is delivered currently, we didn't see differences in this large national sample of patients. Thank you. Very interesting. And are there any aspects of the trial that you would change if you were doing it again? Well, I'm very proud of the trial, and it was a real honor for us to be able to do it. When you do these things, you always look back and think of things that you might have done differently. I think if we had had the chance, one thing I would have loved to have been able to do would have been to conduct a parallel study of patients who chose not to be part of Regain. We had a number of patients who declined participation. They decided they didn't want to be part of research or they had a strong preference for one or another type of anesthesia. I think it would have been really informative to see what those patients ended up getting in terms of their anesthesia care and how they ended up doing in the long run as well. That kind of information would give us some insight into how generalizable the regain findings were. Um, as it turned out, uh, we had a lot uh, on our hands uh, to get this big study done. Uh, which was really, you know, at least twice as big as the next biggest study that's ever randomized people to either of these techniques for any kind of surgery. So in the end, we didn't have the, uh, the opportunity to do a registry, but if we had it to do over again with infinite time, uh, that would be something that I think would be really compelling. Absolutely. Thank you. And what aspects of this research do you think should be explored further in the future? I guess, as you just said, um, including a, a larger population such as a registry. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think a registry is helpful to see, you know, along the lines of this, who was in and who was out. I think in terms of causal inference, figuring out what are the actual impacts of anesthesia on outcomes, randomized trials really have a very unique ability to reveal those kinds of findings. I think there may be opportunities to look in some of the subgroups that we examined. We did look at differences according to pulmonary disease and cardiac disease, we didn't find significant differences there. But the question remains whether or not one or another type of anesthesia might be better for people who have serious comorbidities. But I think there are a lot of practical reasons that would make a study like that quite hard to do. But I think that's a question that sort of remains open at the end of this. I think another big question is, what are the real outcomes of spinal anesthesia and general anesthesia outside the context of hip fracture surgery? You know, we studied only hip fractures. So our results really aren't strictly generalizable, say, to people who are having elective hip surgery. But I think what our studies do, what our study does show is that this type of trial is doable in patients who are having surgery, that we can do large trials where we're randomizing people to different anesthesia techniques. And I think it shows the value of doing this kind of work, not just for hip fracture, but also potentially for other surgical indications. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing your important research findings with us. I really appreciated you coming on the episode today. I will now welcome Dr. Hannah Seymour to join the discussion. 
Thank you so much. And as you said, it, it's a really big deal doing a randomised control trial like, trial like this in hip fracture patients. So thank you for doing it and pushing ahead with what must have been a really difficult trial at times. Um, for our listeners, I guess I've done a quick comparison of who was in the trial versus who's in our registry. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a few key differences, but essentially the population is pretty similar. Your patients are a little bit younger than ours at an average age of 78 versus 82 in our Australian registry. Um, Dementia is present in 13% versus about 30% in our registry Mm. and nursing homes, 8% versus 30. So Mm. you've got, you know, slightly better patients than if you take the whole hip fracture group, which is exactly what you'd expect when you're trying to recruit for one of these trials. Um, And as a result, I suspect the death rate at 60 days, which we don't actually report, we report death at 30 days. Mm -hmm. um, And our mortality rate at 30 days across Australia averages out at about 7%. Um, So I think, again, that's probably that reflection. Putting that to one side, were you surprised with the results? I was. I really was. And, um, you know, the reason I was surprised was that they were so similar across groups. You know, when you do a study like this, you go in with a, a hypothesis. And we had hypothesized that people who would get, would get spinal would have done better in patients who'd, done, who'd gotten general. What was really surprising to us was the fact that for our main outcomes, the, the rates were numerically similar across both groups, which, is, which was really, you know, uh, to me, I thought really startling. I thought it was also quite interesting that we did see some differences in some of these very short-term outcomes in terms of complications. And yet, on all different markers of recovery, we didn't see a lot of difference by technique. I think that this gives us a really interesting perspective because it allows us to stop talking about these treatments in a binary way, right? Oftentimes, when we talk about spinal and general anesthesia or a lot of medical treatments, we like to say, well, I think this is better or I think that's better. What's really special about trials, especially when you measure a number of outcomes, is you can start to characterize the ways in which these treatments differ in terms of the outcomes they produce. And you realize that sometimes there may be nuances to that. Maybe a treatment improves a short-term outcome that doesn't endure to the long-term. Having that information is really important for decision-making. So it's really good to understand practice in different countries. Mm -hmm. Um, I know we've talked about some of that before, and that's partly what I really enjoy at international meetings. What is a standard anesthetic for a general and a standard anesthetic for a spinal in in this trial? Well, you know, um, we published a lot of the information about the intraoperative care in our appendix to this paper. And one thing that we really wanted to do here was to be as transparent as possible and as complete as possible in the data we showed. What we ended up finding is that most people who got spinal anesthesia did get some intraoperative sedation. It was typical for people to get some propofol, some midazolam, occasionally some fentanyl alongside their spinal anesthetics. This reflects pretty much what's typical practice in the United States. Um, There were some interesting questions and conversations about whether or not the sedation itself may have been problematic. I think from the perspective of reflecting standard practice, it's, it's useful information to have allowed this care to vary. I think there, uh, there could be a conversation about whether there might be a regimen that might be better or you know, one type better than another. For general anesthesia, most of our patients received inhaled anesthesia and got an endotracheal tube, and most got some opioids in the operating room. 
across both groups, we had some use of peripheral nerve blocks, which are indicated to treat pain for hip fracture patients. It was about 30% in each group got a peripheral nerve block. In absolute terms, that's quite low, actually. We'd love that number to be much higher across the world. For the US and for Canada, actually, those are actually pretty decent numbers because on a population level, our usage of nerve blocks is actually substantially lower than 30%. Yeah, that's interestingly one of the things that has substantially improved in Australia since the registry started. And we've really advocated for nerve blocks and nearly everybody at my hospital gets a nerve block, which I think is a really important, simple treatment. Mm-hmm. Just going back to the, the spinal and the general, I mean, I as an orthogeriatrician on the ward, I see the variation in anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And we've worked hard. The anesthetists, there's a couple of really outstanding anesthetists in my hospital, Ed O'Loughlin and Matt Harper, who've really tried to give guidance on a standard anesthesia for a hip fracture and trying to reduce the variation in hip fracture anesthesia in our hospital and certainly they advocate for example a spinal with no sedation you know is that another trial to do well you know i mean i i I, first of all i applaud efforts to improve hip fracture care wherever they're happening Um, i think that patient preferences and patient choices are important to consider when we're talking about all of these things Uh, because remember all patients really are different there's no single uniform phenotype of a hip fracture patient and people have their own preferences they're entitled to them as well Um, there has been one trial recently published shortly after ours called the raga delirium trial which was done in china randomized about 900 patients to get spinal versus general anesthesia And the spinal patients apparently got no sedation. That trial showed no differences in delirium after surgery by group, although the rate of delirium they found was pretty low. So those are things that, that, you know, people have thought about in terms of interpreting those findings. That said, um, you know, given that, given prior research that has been done by members of the Regain group, named uh, one in particular is Fritz Sieber, comparing spinal with different sedation levels. Right now, I don't see a lot of compelling evidence that suggests that sedation during spinal anesthesia is a major contributor to delirium. As far as avoiding sedation altogether, I would say that's something that's potentially um, arguable on perhaps theoretical grounds, but there's not really empirical evidence to suggest that that improves outcomes. I think when you're talking about that kind of thing, it's really important to weigh that against what's the experience of the patient. We could think that maybe this is improving things, but unless we're sure that we're not worsening something else, like patient experience, it's something that I think needs to be handled with caution. Yeah, I I think that's really interesting. And I think we've thought that these things would be the answer. And, and if they're not, then we need to just keep working. I think it's possibly a reflection of the high quality care that we provide now. How many, one of the other podcasts that Neve has done is, was with David Scott around the balance trial. Mm-hmm. Did many patients get BIS monitoring? You know, we didn't really collect that data and it was an interesting conversation. You know, you, you, we, we did our study across 46 different sites and, and this is an insight into designing these large trials. It's very much a negotiation between the principal investigator and their team and the sites that do the work in the trial. When we designed our intraoperative sedation monitoring protocols, we went to the sites and we said, well, what do you think about this monitoring? We had a number of sites that said, well, we don't routinely use those. And we said, well, you know, we'd still want you to be in the trial. So it ended up becoming a discussion about how we could accommodate sites in our trial 
while still trying to capture care with a relatively high degree of fidelity. What we settled on was an intraoperative assessment that clinicians did called the Observer's uh, Assessment of Alertness and Sedation, where they documented in the anesthesia record how sleepy the patient was under sedation. Um, That was a challenging aspect of the trial. And we actually did have about 25% of cases, we had a hard time getting any of that data from the sites. But where we did have data, about 85% of patients stayed within our target sedation range, which was arousability to tactile stimulus or voice. Okay. I guess this is a reflection the fact that a geriatrician and an anaesthetist are having such a good discussion about these things is a reflection of multidisciplinary care and how standard that's become for hip fracture patients, which I think is a really good thing. How has this changed your practice and the discussion you have every day? So one of the things that we're frequently confronted with is, oh, there's five hip fracture patients today. Mm-hmm. And in our hospital, it seems to take quite a bit longer to turn around patients when they're having a spinal. Um, so in that situation, would that change your approach? Well, you know, as I've sort of alluded to before, um, I'm a big advocate for engaging patients and family members in decisions around their care. I think when we talk about things like anesthesia that start to verge on somewhat technical decisions, it's, it's sort of easy to forget that, that, that people do often want to be informed and have conversations about what their anesthesia choice should be. We learned this in the trial because we had to have detailed conversations with families about whether they'd enroll or not uh, and, and patients as well. And we often got into a fair bit of detail about the anesthesia techniques. Um, and these were very good conversations. So before the trial, I would usually speak to patients and I would say, you know, we have some data, it's very limited, it's fairly uncertain, um, and and here are potential advantages and disadvantages to spinal versus general. Now I can go to patients with a perhaps not, um, you know, uh, uh, ultimate certainty, but, but at least a greater degree of certainty than we had before and say, for the typical patient, this is what we might expect. I still do, however, always try to incorporate a consideration of each patient's individual physiology into the recommendations and the conversation. For example, if you have a patient with an active pneumonia who's going to the operating room, that might not be the typical patient who enrolled in Regain. That might be a patient who has a physiologic reason why spinal anesthesia perhaps might be better. And also a patient who in many ways would never really be represented in a large trial like this at the scale that a typical patient might be. For that patient, we still have to use physiological clinical reasoning at the bedside to make choices. But for patients who look like the ones who enrolled in Regain, I feel confident that I can share this information with them and give better data to help guide their choices. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. And I think it all does come down to individual patients and us all trying to do the right thing every day. And what randomised trials like yours do is really help us guide that discussion, but they don't always give us the answer. And, and yeah. nothing it, you know, nothing actually gives you the right answer for the person in front of you. Um, and we still have to rely on our clinical judgment and discussions with colleagues each day. I think it's a very good point. It's, you know, I think it's, it's one of these things that we forget about trials. People always ask, well, did you, did you discover which one is better? And I said, well, a trial can't tell you that. That's a value judgment, right? What's better or what's worse. I can tell you what the risk difference was, right? I can tell you the statistic. And that's what a trial does. It gives you a better estimate of what an outcome might be. What we need to remember is that 
patients may have individual values and preferences, and those always need to be incorporated into decisions along with information from clinical trials, as well as physiologic and medical information uh, about patients' conditions. Thank you. I've really enjoyed chatting. It's questions I've wanted to ask you since I read the trial. Thank you again for doing the trial. I think um, these sorts of trials are really important and hip fracture patients are a difficult group to do randomised trials on. So really great work doing the trial and hopefully we'll keep working together and do some more trials in the future. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a real pleasure chatting and uh, you know I look forward to uh, to speaking with you hopefully at another point.